Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, refugees and migration in Ozma Zenahat Khan's novel The Unquiet Dead and then Valeria Luiselli's book Tell Me How It Ends. Osmar Zenahat Khan is the author of The Unquiet Dead, which won the Barry Award, the Arthur Ellis Award and the Romantic Times Reviewer's Choice Award for Best First Novel. A frequent lecturer and commentator, she holds a PhD in international human rights law with a research specialisation in military intervention and war crimes in the Balkans. And formerly, she served as editor-in-chief of Muslim Girl magazine, the first magazine to address a target audience of young Muslim women, which reshaped the conversation about Muslim women in North America. Asma, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. So how would you describe The Unquiet Dead? Uh, I would call it a police procedural in its form, but it's really a story about relationships. Uh, It's a story about betrayal about our notions of justice, and really it's an exploration of identity, alienation, and belonging. It features a cast of two lead detectives who serve as foils for one another. Um, The lead detective is Isa Khachak, who is a Canadian Muslim like myself, and his partner is Sergeant Rachel Getty, who's a bit younger, a bit more hot-headed, a bit more impulsive, but very empathetic with the kinds of crimes that they solve. So let's talk about Isa Khachak first of all. Who is he? He is a man who is very much a product of his city. My mysteries are set in Toronto, and the detectives head up a unit called the Community Policing Section, which is tasked with handling minority-sensitive investigations. So their job is to represent the concerns of those communities to law enforcement, but also in a way for law enforcement to investigate crimes in those communities. So it's a very tricky line for Issa to walk, but It's something that's almost automatic or second nature to him because he has this dual identity or he has multiple identities. And he's a man who's comfortable in his own skin. Um, He's a man who's a product of a city like Toronto where different communities are always learning to negotiate with each other, to accommodate each other, and to live in in harmony with one another. So um, Isa is a product of that environment. And he's also a man who's a practicing Muslim. So he's devout And his faith provides the ethical framework for how he looks at his life and also how he looks at his work. You say he he walked a tightrope, and that's that's a great character for a book to have because he's 
you know, he's a respected man by his colleagues and his community, but at the same time, both sides sort of mistrust him a little bit as well. So he's like an outsider. That's right. That's I think that's a fair characterization. And it's one I develop more as the series goes on, where because of his faith, there's a question of when he's investigating a case that may involve his co-religionists, there's a question of whether where his loyalties lie and how he identifies himself and whether he'll act truly to serve justice, which is an unfair question because it's not a question we would ask of anyone else, but I think it's a, a reasonable reflection of our times. And then within his own community, there's this idea that, well, you've gone over to the other side, you suspect us, and we haven't done anything wrong. So how do we know that you're truly one of us or that we can trust you? So that provides for a lot of tension and conflict, which is also always good material for a writer to work with. And the CPS, is that a real thing? Uh, It's sort of inspired by a real thing. Out in British Columbia, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police had done a program much like community policing, the point of which was to reduce tension between law enforcement and South Asian communities out there to provide some answers about what law enforcement actually does and to let the public know that law enforcement is actually there to serve them. So it was intended to reduce those tensions. But again, that element of suspicion and fear is always there under the surface. And Rachel Getty, who's Issa's partner, why does he want to work with her? He knows that she's an exceptionally capable police officer because that's her reputation in the police service. And he also knows that Rachel has had kind of a hard time of things. Her father is a prominent police superintendent who's retired now, but he has a reputation as a bully. And he knows that Rachel has had uh, a hard time in her previous detachments where she served. So he, he likes this idea of being a mentor and shepherding underdogs under his wing. But he also knows that he tends to be much more reserved and cerebral, never presenting all sides of himself to the world or to the people that he interrogates or interviews. And Rachel is able to bring out some strengths that he doesn't have. Rachel has these strengths in the sense that she's very empathetic and she can, because she's able to relate to people because of the dysfunction in her own family life and her own personal suffering, she's able to bring much more out of the people that they talk to than Issa would be able to on his own. So he knows that Rachel's particular strengths will balance out his own and make them an excellent investigative unit. And you mentioned her father. I mean, it's true to say she lives somewhat in the shadow of her father, a sort of retired and and rather old school policeman. How does that affect her relationship with Issa? Well, I I think as a woman in law enforcement, it's a male-dominated field to begin with, and she's already had several experiences like that. So she's inclined at the beginning to be suspicious, but then she's kind of disarmed by the way Issa treats her, which is with respect and with consideration for her point of view, and always encouraging her to put herself forward, which is an experience that she hasn't had before, that someone thinks that her insights are valuable. So although she comes to him with a chip on her shoulder, um, over the course of their working relationship, they're really able to build a partnership of, of trust and mutual respect. Before we go to any other characters, I just wanted to say something about Toronto. What is it about Toronto that made you want to write about it? Uh, Toronto is my hometown, so it's a city that I love. Um, it's a city that I, w- I grew up in and was educated in, got married in. So I have strong roots here. And I think in many ways, as with Issa, it's a city that has defined me. Uh, it's very multicultural. It's a place where I feel completely at home, completely free to be myself and to interact with my fellow citizens. There's a freedom and a, almost a kind of joy in this city. So I love discovering it and rediscovering it through Issa's eyes. Um, And I wanted to, because I know that my books are tackling these very heavy human rights themes that require a great deal of research and a great deal of fact-checking and factual accuracy, 
I wanted to have one cornerstone of the books be something that I knew very well and that it was easy for me to write about and, and where that knowledge and familiarity would flow through each book. And could you say something about Scarborough Bluffs, which is the, the place where this particular, the incident that's central to this book takes place? So I used to live on the Scarborough Bluffs for a year when I was a child and attending school in Scarborough. And oftentimes I would walk home from school through a path along the bluffs. And I, I would always be very much impressed by the beauty and the ruggedness and the, the, the waves sweeping up to the shore. And it had a very elemental feel, a pull even then. And I always found it very atmospheric and thought that, you know, this is a place when the weather is up and the wind is up, it provides a certain atmosphere that certainly would lend itself well to crime fiction. Um, the bluffs are currently in a state of erosion, so they're not always the safest place to walk. But when you're looking at them from a distance or if you're in Bluffers Park, they're, they're simply magnificent. And so they're like a secret corner of the city. And there's a lot of houses that back onto the neighborhoods that front the there's neighborhoods that back onto the bluffs. And so I thought, you know, this would be a really great setting to write a very elemental kind of story. So this this brings us to the one of the other major characters or the central character, Christopher Drayton, who's a major presence in the book, despite not actually appearing in it because he's dead. Um, it's not giving too much away to suggest that he might not be who he says he is, might he? That's right. I, I don't think you're giving anything away, given that the book jacket <laughs> does sort of confirm that, that this is a novel about a man who may be a Bosnian Serb war criminal fugitive who's uh, tricked his way into Canada, and that might be the reason behind his death. So the central question posed is, did, did this man fall from the Scarborough Bluffs to his death? Was it an accident or was it a deliberate act? Was it a murder? And as Issa and Rachel get into the case and start to unravel the pieces of Christopher Drayton's past, it becomes very clear that he's not who he said he was, that he was, in fact, fleeing justice for the crimes that he perpetrated during the Bosnian War. And then the mystery of the novel really is, well, then if that was the case, did someone have a reason to wish him dead? And if so, whom? And um, that's where the novel really asks us to look at questions of justice. He's suspected of being high up in something called the Drina Corps. So tell us who they were. Uh, so the Drina Corps was one of the military detachments or brigades involved in carrying out the logistics of the massacre at Srebrenica. And Srebrenica is a town in the country of Bosnia and Herzegovina, close to the Serbian border towards the east. And it was one of six UN-designated safe havens, meaning that it was supposed to be under the protection of the United Nations peacekeeping forces in the area. The, the entire force was called UNPREFOR, or the United Nations Protection Forces. And then during the um, the time of the fall of Srebrenica, when the Bosnian Serb army rolled into this enclave, it was um, under the stewardship of a small battalion from the Netherlands, colloquially known as Dutch Bat. And so Christopher Drayton is uh, a leading figure who is responsible for the logistics of the Srebrenica massacre. And he's sort of based on a composite of actual, of actual perpetrators of that crime. You use excerpts in the book from actual witness statements that were from war crime trials and, and survivors of, of the massacre of the war. Tell us about why you wanted to do that. Uh, that was, I think, fundamental to me in terms of writing the book, because I, over the course of my academic research, I had spent a, a fair amount of time with testimony from the war crimes trials, but even before the trials began, um, survivor testimony that was coming out of Bosnia while the war was taking place, um, these really horrific stories about concentration camps and rape camps and, and the tremendous suffering of the Bosnian people. And so these were statements in their own words and their own voices. And then, of course, there were also statements before the United Nations Security Council 
made by Bosnia's representatives to the Security Council. And as I would read these statements as they were coming out day after day or month after month, they began to run together in my head. And I've said this before, like a kind of dark and damaged poetry. They were stark and they were really beautiful and they were resonant. And they had so much more emotional power than anything that an academic could write or that a journalist could report. So it was always with me that over time, if I ever had the opportunity to write about the Bosnian genocide, that it was important to incorporate those voices that tell the story with as much simplicity and authenticity and naturalism as possible. And I had also had a sense over time in North America, particularly, that many people who knew about the dissolution of Yugoslavia didn't really understand the nature of the crimes that were perpetrated during the Bosnian genocide. So reflecting those crimes in the voices of the survivors seemed for me to be the best way to reflect those truths or to reflect that particular experience. So above and beyond Drayton's possible role in in the Srebrenica massacre, there's a a cast of characters in the book who have reasons for possibly wanting to have killed him, various suspects. Tell us about some of the other people in his life. Um, So Drayton was engaged to a woman named Melanie Blessant, who's this almost a stereotypical kind of gold-digging platinum blonde who has focused on him primarily for his money, but also because he's an attractive, virile man and provides her with a sense of security. And she has two teenage daughters named Hadley and Cassidy, who figure largely in the story, and who are very sharp, the older one particularly Hadley, sharp and observant about her mother and her mother's failings. And the mother, of course, is in the middle of a bitter custody battle with her ex-husband, Dennis Blissant. So there's this tension um, between all these parties about who will gain custody of these girls and what these girls want themselves and what Drayton's role in the girls' lives is, which is never really resolved until almost the end of the book. We find out all of these things. Um, So those are some of the characters. And then there's all these other tangential characters. I don't know if they're tangential. I don't know how to describe them without giving too much away, but... There's a museum that Drayton is very interested in investing in and putting his stamp over and his name on, and that's a, a museum called Ringsong. And it's a museum that displays artifacts from the history of Andalusia and a period when the Moors ruled Spain. Um, so it's a museum about a community that was able to live together um, and to create this remarkable cultural synthesis, Arabs, uh, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, in a period called the Convivencia. And so I, I was kind of using ring song and that moment of enlightenment as a metaphor for the Bosnian enlightenment, where different communities lived together peaceably in Bosnia and considered themselves one until the dissolution and the ultranationalism and the ultranationalist agenda reared its head. And again, the, the, the guy that's central to this story that may or may not be a Bosnian war criminal, I, I say may or may not, but you know, the guy who's central to this story, he's wanting to fund this museum, which may seem like a strange thing to do for somebody who's been heavily involved in the, you know, the destruction of a, of a Muslim community. And again, there's not, we can't say that much about it, but this museum and the house also has a, a special resonance for, for Issa as well, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it's because Isa is a devout Muslim. So even though he's of South Asian background, so he's he's not an Arab, he doesn't speak Arabic as a language, but he has a, a, a religious, I guess, sympathy or, or identification with the history of the Islamic civilization, wherever it was outspread in the world at any particular period in history. 
And I think that's a, a very common feeling about the Muslim diaspora, that they feel connected to their civilizational roots and their history in all its various forms. So Isa is very enchanted by this idea of, of the pluralism and the mutual tolerance. Although, of course, there were it wasn't as, as ideal and rosy as I'm painting it. There were episodes of division and distraction and disturbance and destruction, um, but not necessarily one community against another, not necessarily Muslim against Christian or Christian against Jew, but internally within those communities as well. And more broadly, those communities would form alliances with each other. So, I mean, it's a complex and beautiful thing that fascinates Isa. It inspires him. And what inspires him most about it is how Arabic is this common language that is venerated. It's revered and it's considered to think of of great erudition and accomplishment to be able to speak it and to be able to write poetry in it, and for that poetry to then to have an influence upon other languages and other cultures. So he has this very deep, under-the-surface emotional attachment to the idea of everything um, Andalusia represents. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. I'm talking to Osma Zenahat Khan about her book, The Unquiet Dead. And Osma, in the second half, I want to bring in a bit more of your own career and personal experience. The book obviously deals with, with the aftermath of, of Srebrenica. I want to talk about your, your own experience with um, survivors and, and refugees and how that's fed into writing this book, I guess. Certainly. So without overstating my experience, I'm pri- I was primarily an academic doing research on the war. Um, so that would basically involve me in a, in a musty library reading documents that nobody else was interested in reading at the time and, and absorbing those voices. But in a, I was a, a law student who had just begun law school when the war broke out. So I tried to do a little bit of student activism at that time. I'd formed a group with several other students with the we had original name Ad Hoc Committee on Bosnia-Herzegovina. And essentially what we were doing was bringing speakers to the capital city of Ottawa who were either humanitarian aid workers working in Sarajevo to break the siege or experts on Bosnia or Bosnians under siege who would talk about their experiences and try to educate the Canadian public and influence some policy action from our government. So that was on a very small scale, but we were loosely connected to a network of other students doing the same kind of work. And then I had done very briefly um, a period of volunteer work with the Bosnian Canadian Relief Association. And later on, uh, as I began to go into the war crimes trials, I started to collect witness testimony and speak to refugees and go to a lot of talks where refugees would come and address the Canadian public, including some of the imams who had suffered through the Bosnian genocide. So just a collation of those voices and those stories. Then later on, when I was working at Muslim Girl magazine, we did a a cover story on the daughters of Srebrenica. So then I went into the Bosnian community there to interview girls from families who had fled Srebrenica and to hear their various stories about their missing family members, their fathers, their grandfathers, their uncles, their brothers, um, and to sort of do a story on what it was like to be a Bosnian in the United States in the wake of that history, how you rebuild your lives and your communities and move forward and the things that you, when you look back, the things and the voices and the people that you've lost And then most recently, I've made a trip to Bosnia last year to finally visit the genocide memorial at Srebrenica to pay my respects there. And when you're there, 
in Srebrenica and you're looking out at the cemetery and you see those rows upon rows of white tombstones, it's actually quite numbing. You expect to feel so much, but it's such an overwhelming experience that all your thought is blanked out. And it was later when I was in the UN, the former UN base at Potocari, where I was looking at the little mementos that were found in the mass graves of the Bosnians who had been executed during the fall of Srebrenica. That's where all the emotional power and resonance came. And it tied all of those episodes together in my life, the student activism, the volunteering, um, the interview of refugees, and then this constant presence of these Bosnian voices through survivor testimony and war crimes testimony. So it really was a, a major part of my life to study the Bosnian genocide and to think about what I might do with what I had learned. A lot of people will have picked this book up primarily as a mystery novel, a crime novel, and... Issa will almost certainly be one of the first realistic, nuanced Muslim characters that they'll have spent time with. How's the reaction been to that? Are people? Do you think people are learning anything from Issa? I definitely think so. One of the reasons that I wanted to write him is that because we don't very often see characters like him in fiction, let alone crime fiction. So I wanted to represent myself, essentially, to put a character like myself into mainstream fiction and to write something that I knew really well. And what I knew was so different from the narrative about people like Isa or people like myself. So I knew that I would be sort of wading into these tricky waters where there's so much fear, there's so much mistrust and suspicion, there's so much collective blaming and collective guilt assigned to American Muslim and Canadian Muslim communities. And I'm sure you have a similar situation in the United Kingdom and in Europe, if not a more extreme situation. So there's there was this tension to navigate while I was writing, and there was this expectation that a character like Isa would be met with a fair amount of hostility, or some would even view it as a kind of cultural propaganda. But I was really um, pleasantly surprised by the reception to Isa because I've given a lot of talks, and I've, I've done a lot of um, mystery conventions and book clubs and so on, women's association, and had a lot of opportunity to talk about the books, what they mean, why I write them, and who Isa and Rachel both are. And what I find is that he's really provided this incredible opening for me to talk about him and his character, but also just about my community and to seize the narrative in my own hands rather than being constantly misrepresented and spoken for. And what I've found is that the more I write these stories and the more people are able to get into Issa's head and his thoughts and to empathize with him and to find him um, relatable, likable, attractive, or charismatic, it really is building a bridge and it's reducing, it's doing its small part to reduce that fear and that tension and that suspicion. And as I go through these act these interactions, sometimes they're very hostile. Um, and they're asking me to account for every political act ever done by every Muslim everywhere. But as we engage in these conversations more and more, I see that willingness to hear and that willingness to, um, to reach out in return. And I, I often receive a lot of public support and encouragement from other writers, from book clubs, just from ordinary Americans or Canadians who've come across my work. Um, and who think that it's valuable and worthwhile. So I do feel that the books are kind of a continuation of my human rights work in the sense that my work is always about representing marginalized voices and marginalized communities. And the chance that Isa could break any new ground or help us speak to each other with civility and warmth and empathy and understanding is more than I could have hoped for from these books. 
And in, indeed, as you said, I mean, I think things are obviously different again in Europe. I know you grew, you were born in, in the UK, but have obviously grown up in, in Canada and now live in the US. And I mean, I think at the time you were writing this book, if we'd have spoken, I might have asked you something like, you know, what are the sort of nuanced differences between living as a Muslim in Canada to the US? But I think now, at this point in history, have things on the ground, have things significantly changed since Trump came to power? Um, you know, as a practicing Muslim woman living in the United States, I would say absolutely. I would say my impression is that certain elements of society have been emboldened in their prejudice and hostility, and in fact, encouraged even to violence, a spike in hate crimes against American Muslims since the election. Um, and I, I think that's a trajectory that will only continue to rise. And um, the most frequent targets of this, of that kind of rhetoric and, and that kind of emboldening are in fact Muslim women, because Muslim women who wear a headscarf are visibly identifiable. So they present a target for someone who has that rage and that prejudice inside them. So there has certainly been a coarsening of the dialogue and the discourse in the United States. There is seems to be an apparent top-down sanction for it, because when incidents occur, such as the shooting in the Quebec mosque, or the recent bombing of the mosque in Minnesota, or this long this long chain of vandalism of our mosques in the United States, you know, with pig's heads and excrement and defaced Qur'ans being left at the mosques or um, attacks on on people who are identifiably Muslim or, or people who are assumed to be Muslim. For example, there have been many attacks on the Sikh community mistakenly. It's, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a frightening moment. And I think that's only possible when there's no statement condemning those things, when there's no statement from the top trying to reconcile communities and saying these kinds of actions are not tolerable in a, in a democracy and they will not be tolerated crimes against people because of their ethnic or religious identity or racial identity will not be tolerated. So we haven't seen that kind of that kind of rhetoric from the top. And I think that certainly has encouraged the violence and the and the hate. We're talking about this as a debut novel because it's it's just out in the UK. But it it isn't a debut novel. There's already a, another another book out in the series, The Language of Secrets, and, and another one well on the way. So tell us something about what The Language of Secrets is about and then what's next for, for Issa and Rachel. So The Language of Secrets is actually based on a real-life event that took place in Toronto. It was based on a, a defeated cell called the Toronto 18 who had wanted to carry out a terrorist attack against targets in Toronto and Ottawa, and, it, and there was a RCMP and security services investigation that sort of infiltrated that group and then arrested all the all the members of the cell before they could take any action. Um, and they'd fallen under the sway of this charismatic ideologue, and some of them had been radicalized online. And then, of course, um, they were all arrested and they've gone to prison, or some of them have already served time and they're out. So the story of the language of secrets is that Issa is at, there's a murder in this cell, in a cell like that one. And Issa and Rachel are asked to solve the murder, but without the, the ongoing um, anti-terrorism operation without foiling in any way the anti-terrorism investigation. So it's a very difficult and tricky case. And because I get asked this question a great deal, both as a, a Muslim woman and as a Muslim writer with a Muslim character, I get asked this question about, well, how do you explain terrorism and um, how do you account for it? And why is it so specific to your particular fate? So the language of secrets really gave me the opportunity to explore that question and put Isa in a situation of maximum discomfort where He's suspected by everyone around him, those involved in the anti-terrorism operation, those involved in the cell, those in his own community, and he has a murder to solve. So he's, and, and his own sister in this book is involved with a member of the cell. So he has all these tensions piled upon him and he has to navigate those tensions 
and also kind of resolve the question of his identity to himself, but also for my readers. So narratively, that was really rich territory in terms of character dynamics. That was very rich territory. But it also allowed me to speak back to this question of why we assign collective guilt to an entire faith community based on the actions of an extremist fringe. So the possibilities in this narrative were really rich and really intriguing. And I, I, mean, I should probably shouldn't even say this, but really fun for me to write. And then to resolve that question for myself and for my readers so that they could get past thinking about this in terms of Isa and we could move on to other things. So I've been talking to Osmar Zenahat Khan. We've been talking about The Unquiet Dead, um, a Rachel Getty and Essa Hattak mystery. It's out now in the UK from No Exit Press. So Osmar, thank you so much for taking the time to tell us about it. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Gaia Vince, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Valeria Luiselli was born in Mexico City in 1983. She's the author of the novels Faces in the Crowd and The Story of My Teeth and a collection of essays called Sidewalks. Her work has been published in magazines and newspapers such as Letras Libras, The New York Times, The New Yorker, Freeman's, El País and Harper's and she's published in 15 languages. She's currently Professor of Romance Language and Literature at Hofstra University and Valeria is now the author of Tell Me How It Ends, an essay in 40 questions which we're going to be talking about today. Valeria, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me. Can we talk first of all about how you came to be working with the migrant children that you talk about in this book? So you were based basically in the US waiting for a a green card yourself. That's correct. Um, My family and I had applied for a green card. And you you can't leave the US while you're in the process of changing or adjusting uh, immigration status. So we decided to take a road trip. um, And also, 
maybe because we couldn't leave the country, but also because we thought, well, if we're going to be residents in this country, we, we might as well get to know it <laughs> a little bit better. So we took a road trip down from Manhattan to Arizona. And it was during that trip that the so-called immigration crisis erupted. And I say, I say so-called because uh, others have contested that it is, and I agree with with that, that it's a it's a refugee crisis, mm-hmm. not a not an immigration crisis. We can go into the details of that later if you if you want. And we 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 started driving down south, and I started taking note of the way that media started covering this immigration crisis. Uh, the crisis basically consisted in a sudden and very rapid surge of children arriving alone and undocumented at the at the U.S. Mexico border. And the U.S. immigration system feeling that it was somehow not not equipped to deal with, with so many kids, right? So the cri- they they called it a crisis, also not not because the kids <laughs> came from a situation mm-hmm. of trauma and crisis themselves, but uh, because the the course apparently could could not deal with so many. So uh, I noted, I took I took notes, I looked at local newspapers, we heard. local radio stations through Oklahoma, through New Mexico, through Arizona. And when we got back to New York, my husband and my daughter had received their green cards, but mine was just not there. And in fact, I had to wait almost two more years for my green card to come. And I ended up talking to to my lawyer very often uh, to see what was happening and what we had to do and how we had to appeal. And uh, what kind of petitions we had to to make for my green card to start being processed, and one day she told me, "Well, you know what? I have to I have to leave your case because I just got a a, a very meaningful job in a nonprofit organization representing undocumented children." And I knew I knew about I knew a lot about the crisis by then, and um, she needed to leave my case because she had to close her private practice and join this organization. And I asked her, "Well." And like, what are you going to be doing, and what's exactly going on in court? And tell me, is there any need for for volunteers mm-hmm. in court? And she she talked to me about the kind of work that lawyers were going to be doing, and told me that indeed volunteers were needed because nonprofit organizations and lawyers within nonprofit organizations had come together when the when the crisis was declared announced. And when they started hearing the rumor that the Obama administration was going to create a priority docket Mm -hmm. in court, basically to to speed up the deportations of of children. And so those lawyers came together and tried to figure out a way in which they could respond. And they came up with a a questionnaire to screen children in courts and help them find pro bono lawyers. And there was a a need for interpreters and Mm -hmm. translators to come in and serve basically as bridges between those lawyers that were acting so quickly to respond to the situation and the children themselves. So that's where she said there was a need for volunteers, and that's that's what I ended up doing. A few months later, um, I took a kind of crash course, a series of crash courses with different lawyers um, who were already involved in screenings in court, and I ended up ended up not only really translating and and interpreting, but actually screening children because there there were too many children and not mm. enough uh, uh, lawyers there to screen them. So the crisis, the so-called crisis, as we've said, and I mean I don't think 
we even need to have a debate about, you know, the refugee stroke, you know, migrant status. There is a war going on south of the border. These people are refugees as far as I'm concerned. But I want to talk about why that is. I mean, what has changed? There's obviously always been a steady stream of migrants coming from Central America into the United States. What had changed recently to make it so much more? It's a really good question. And I think it's going to take us time to understand understand it fully, understand mm-hmm. the reasons behind that sudden change fully. What I would say to you is that one very clear thing that has happened over the past, say, 10 years or so, is that the states, the governments of Mexico and of the countries of the Southern Triangle, sorry, of the Northern Triangle, uh, meaning Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, uh, have kind of lost control of the violence related to drug wars and and drug cartels. And in that loss of control, there are many more victims of the drug war, of course, right? The the numbers of of people disappeared or killed or kidnapped by by gangs and and narco cartels has risen tremendously. And it's it's a failure of of the state of, of of those countries that has allowed that to, right? So with that debilitation of the state, the only response, if if there's no due process, if there's no uh, law enforcement, if there's no justice system, the only option left for most people is to flee, right? So people flee. And the way that refugee international laws around asylum and refugees are set up, it's when a government of, of, of of a country... Uh, or a group in power uh, persecutes a group of people. Uh, it's, it's when that happens that people can ask for asylum in mm-hmm. another country. What's tricky about gangs is that, well, they are not the government, but they they have become a kind of parastate, you know, right? They have this um, tremendous economic power. They They are involved with arms trafficking, with drug trafficking, they have their own kind of justice system, right? And and they do function in a way like a like mm-hmm. governmental, or they are as as powerful and and as determining in people's lives as as might uh, a military government persecuting people, say, like in in the Central America of the seventies or eighties. So that's another discussion. But what one important uh, thing that perhaps is going to mark our, our, our future and not-so-distant future discussion around refugees and immigration and is how we have to rethink uh, immigration laws and, mm-hmm. and uh, laws around asylum so that they can benefit people who are fleeing new circumstances that were previously not existent, right? You're from Mexico, but the, the children that we're going to be talking about here in the main are from, as you said, that Northern Triangle, Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. Because obviously there's, you know, listeners will be familiar with that there's a lot of drug violence, a lot of drug violence going on in Mexico as well. But Mexican children, if they flee to the United States, are treated very differently, aren't they, to those children from elsewhere? Yeah, there's a law that's... It comes from international accords uh, that protects children who flee in search of asylum. It has a very long name. It's something like the law against human victims or the law in protection of victims. Of, I, I don't remember. <laughs> You'll have to look it up and maybe say so. But basically, it's a law that protects uh, people in, in search of, 
who are seeking asylum. But George W. Bush made an amendment to that law in 2007, just before he left. And with that amendment excluded people from Canada and Mexico under the, the, the strange phrasing uh, of, of, of countries that have that share borders with the United States or something like that. And, and with that, he, ex- he, he did the UDs excluded mm-hmm. uh, both countries, but really de facto just Mexicans. Yeah, so basically he's, he's dealing with the problem of all of those child immigrants that are coming from Canada, obviously. Exactly, all these go. children from Canada trying to flee to the United <laughs> States. You never know <laughs> when the tables turn. But anyway, so that, that, that amendment excluded Mexican children. So when Mexican children also fleeing similar circumstances uh, as the ones that children from Honduras, El Salvador, or Guatemala flee, when they arrive, Mexican children arrive at the border, they are turned back under the legal proceeding in a kind of sinister way called voluntary return. Yes. And one of the most recent threats of the Trump administration is that that law that now protects children of Central America will no longer protect children of Central America. I don't know how they will, like what kind of amendment mm-hmm. they will have to make if they if they do indeed carry that through. But um, unfortunately, there is a precedent for it, for it, and that's Bush's amendment. And and so now that's the most current threat. Mm-hmm. I'm Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. We'll come back to Trump right at the end of the interview. But as it happens, most of the things that you're talking about in this book have happened under Obama's administration. And you you talked about, you mentioned before, this priority juvenile docket that he brought in to deal with this so-called crisis. What was the situation before that and what changed? So what changed? What changed basically with the priority docket was that children no longer had one calendar year to find a lawyer that could defend them against a deportation proceeding, but now only 21 days. They became a priority, but not for the good reasons. They became a priority uh, for deportation in the series of dockets that immigration court handles. Once the children get to the United States, you're based in New York. They're obviously crossing over the, the Mexican border into the United States somewhere in Texas or Arizona. What happens to them then? How do they get to be sitting with you in a room somewhere in New York being interviewed? Yeah, so there are several steps. First, uh, a child arrives at the U.S.-Mexico border. And what happens most of the times is that that child turns him or herself in to immigration authorities, to Border Patrol, basically, because they children w- won't continue the journey alone, especially not if they come in through a place like Douglas, Arizona, and then have to cross uh, part of the Arizona desert mm-hmm. to get to the next town. They, the children would probably die in, 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 in trying to do something like that. But also, beyond the dangers that crossing the border unnoticed poses, there's the fact that if one does indeed cross unnoticed, then one will remain undocumented, so therefore a kind of ghost mm-hmm. uh, for the rest of one's life. And that's not what these children seek. Uh, these children seek asylum. So they need to put themselves in the hands of the law as quickly as possible for their safety and for their proceedings to begin immediately. And that is what they do. So after they turn themselves in, they, they, they're interviewed by Border Patrol 
there's a very another kind of sinister term uh, that is used to refer to that interview. It's the credible fear interview, uh, just to see if a child has a credible fears and, and can go on kind of to the next step, right? It's like some kind of sinister video game. And if they pass that interview and are not deported back, they are, they are placed in, in an icebox, in the icebox, and that's what it's called uh, colloquially. It's a detention center, basically, uh, that is extremely cold. So Spanish speakers call it the yelera, which means icebox. And it, it, is, it is overseen by uh, ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, so ICE, right? <laughs> so that is, that's why it's called the icebox. And people are supposed to not stay there beyond 72 hours, although from many testimonies it is known that, that many times people stay much longer than that and in, and in dreadful conditions. Once people are allowed to leave and children in particular, they are placed in, in, in shelters uh, that are near the border, right? A lot of those shelters uh, were, are not really equipped to, to receive a lot of children, so are, are rather makeshift uh, spaces. But at least from all the narratives that I've heard directly or vicariously through colleagues and, and other people that I worked with in court, uh, kids there receive a much more humane treatment. Um, there's aid workers, there's, there's people, it, it's, it's not immigration authorities mm -hmm. there, but just people that are, not the immigration authorities aren't people, of course, but, but the, the, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a less cruel institution. And from there, if they are able to contact a family member that is also, um, that has also agreed to become mm -hmm. their sponsor for yeah. immigration purposes, uh, they are then sent to that family member. Uh, be it a parent or an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent or even a family friend. Sometimes children don't find anyone. Uh, and in that dreadful case, they stay on in the, the detention center system. There are a lot of children living in kind of juvenile prisons mm -hmm. um, because they weren't able to find family members. And there, there's like, there's one, there's several organizations that, that work on these more complex cases. There's one in particular, the Young Center in the US. Uh, it's based in Chicago, but has different offices. And they, they work, for example, on, on that, I guess really the, the, the worst, the worst uh, part of the spectrum of, of children because they're children that, that will be in kind of prison until further notice, right? And that's basically it. When, once a child does find a family member, uh, they are sent to them, uh, often at the cost of the family. Mm -hmm. That is at least, in my experience, the, the, how the narrative goes. It's the family that pays a bus or, um, or an airplane, if they can, from that border land to Chicago, JFK, uh, wherever they mm -hmm. fly to. And once there, they receive a notice to appear. It's a court summons. And that's where their deportation proceedings begin and when they have to get a lawyer to defend them as quickly as possible. And then that's where you come in. Not me, but <laughs> <laughs> that's where lawyers come in and that's where, that's where interpreters and screeners and, and translators have been handy. So once you are called in to, to interpret for the children there is this 
series of questions that they're asked, which is to gather information for the lawyers to help in in their case, in the deportation case. That's what this book is based around. So just give us some impression of what it's like to interview these children, because obviously they've been they've had this incredibly traumatic journey. Things have happened to them on the way. So this is not an easy thing, even just getting to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously they're part of this court case. So what is that like to sit down and actually talk to the children at that point? Well, it isn't easy, of course, um, especially if you if you one has no previous training. And so it's it's very important also to recognize one's limitations there as 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 an interviewer. Um, so, for example, I mean, I I never ask children unnecessary questions. That is questions that um, that might not help their case in the U.S. Right. So many times, more traumatic experiences that they may have had in their journey, for example, not at home, but in their journey, don't don't always or necessarily help the case and so as much as it's something that I sometimes would like to know about because those things happen in my country mm-hmm. which is Mexico I, I don't um, and I don't because I know I'm also that I'm, I'm not prepared as a psychologist to deal with trauma now there are people normal people like me that is with no particular training in, in psychology that in order to to work with kids in detention centers, so through organizations such as the one I mentioned earlier, the Young Center, do get a a, a special training in in ways to deal with trauma, and to to be able to sit with a kid and interview them responsibly. Right, that's a very it's it's I think it's a really important component of the work. The interview in court is is in a way more cursory. It's it's really. If you get to question number five and you already have enough information for the story to look like a case, you can stop there and and then a lawyer will look at it and say, yeah, actually, we do have a case right here. That's it. Great. And then you can move on. And that's a good thing because there's no, there's no reason why you should force a child to talk about hurtful and traumatic experiences. So when, or my, one of the things that I learned quickly was, was to try to, to be as pragmatic as possible with the court interview, right? And try to try to get just enough information for there to be a case and not dig too deeply for there to be wounds uh, suddenly reopened. I mentioned that most of the things that we've been talking about and what you talk about in this book happened under Obama, a president who, you know, most people would think was a lot more progressive than things often turned out. Obviously now Donald Trump is in charge and, you know, has from the get-go, from his campaigns, been much more punitive in his attitude towards to Mexico itself, not just the, the, the people. What's immediately changed? Many things have changed. I mean, the Obama administration was not particularly humane with respect to immigration, and their immigration policies were also hard to read because there were many contradictions, right? So there was Obama's... Uh, executive action on DACA, uh, which was a great thing. But then there were things like secure communities and, of course, the the amount of deportations that went on or the priority docket, which much fewer people know about. But, I mean, the question with the Trump administration is that it seems kind of wrapped in a cloak of impunity, right? They 
whatever they do, it's like they get away with it. And the the things that they're doing to the the undocumented community, to to immigrants more generally, but in particular to the to the undocumented community, is I believe something worthy of international observers coming in and sort of keeping vigilance over and eventually judging them in international courts <laughs> because what they're doing is illegal. They, uh, without a kind of court, without any any legal uh, backing, without a warrant, ICE officers raid homes and basically take people and disappear them uh, into detention centers or jails or and maybe even best case scenario, deport them back. Mm-hmm. That kind of terror did not exist in the in the Obama administration. I started seeing mm-hmm. that terror in people only very recently. Uh, another thing that started back in the Obama administration, if I'm not mistaken, but now has has become more common, or at least in my experience in talking to members of of the undocumented community and especially mothers, women. Is the are the ankle bracelets that are placed on on especially on mothers and not not only but on mothers who are not retained who are who are let go after they're detained at the border they they're not retained in jail they're, if they have children they're let go in order to take care of their children but they 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 get ankle bracelets they place ankle bracelets on them that have a GPS tracking system so that they are. Uh, under a kind of surveillance all the time, it's it seems like a dystopic mm-hmm. uh, horror film, right? And but but that's I mean that is happening right now. So yes, I mean things have changed for the worse in basically every way. Okay, I'm afraid that's where we're going to have to leave it. I've been talking to Valeria Luiselli. We've been talking about her book. Tell me how it ends. An essay in forty questions, which is out now in the UK from Fourth Estate. Valeria, thank you so much for coming in thank and sharing so some of it with us. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.